so um, I am wrapping up our Ezra and Nehemiah service series series just in time for us to head into Christmas and Advent and talk about Jesus in that perspective. And um, have you guys, how have you felt about this series? Been good. Did you learn something? What did you learn? Did anybody learn? What did you tell me you learned? You got set to learn something. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I learned a lot of stuff. I don't spend a lot of time in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're just books that I skip over. I love Romans. I love all the New Testament stuff. I love um, all the Old Testament stories that have really interesting stuff. But Ezra and Nehemiah weren't books that I really pursued. So this series was really good for me in learning a lot about them. And I want to just kind of wrap this up um, and put it in perspective of where we are now and where we're headed as a body. Because um, I was praying with Mr. Henry this morning and uh, Heather, we were talking about it, and Ashley, thank you, Ashley. Um, and we were talking about the great cloud of witnesses and our um, experience with Jesus is completely tied to theirs. Like, they don't, if they don't receive the kingdom, we don't receive the kingdom, you know? Yes. yes. I just really appreciated last week. <laughs> Um, uh, John talking about how, you know, like all this temple rebuilding was to make us hungry for Jesus. Mm. That's, that's a really good message. Yeah, anybody else? That was good. I didn't expect that, but that was good. Anybody else want to share something that they learned in this series or so? I really like how everybody had their place um, and they would line up when they were building the wall. Mm. In front of their house. And it was really important that, yeah, like it, sometimes it would be that house, that first home that would end where they were building, and sometimes it would be, you know, some gate or something like that. And it just was so good to know that we really do need to work together. We need to right beside one another. Mm-hmm. Like there can't be gaps in the, in the wall. Mm-hmm. Anymore? No, all the best to to build that wall, the, the temple. It left them feeling polished. Yeah. And Jesus is. Mr. Hammond could preach my whole sermon because that that is the point of all of this. So if you wanted to leave, that's the whole point. You got it. You can go right now. Please don't. That would kind of hurt my thumb a little bit. Okay. So let me, because that's exactly what I'm about to talk about. And um, I want to tell a funny story and then a more serious story to kind of start this off. So when I was little, um, let me tell you about me a little bit. I was born on a military base in Colorado, and then I moved to Michigan and lived there with my grandparents until my mom finished serving in the military. And then we all moved from Atlanta. So by the time I got to Atlanta as a little black girl, I did not have Atlanta little black girl culture. I had culture from Colorado and Michigan, and they were like, what are you? And I was like, um, I'm not sure. And so there were all these other little girls from our, uh, in our neighborhood that moved down from different places, too, because during this time, when we moved to Atlanta, there was like a great, um, I don't know, migration of people from the north to the south, of black and brown people from the north to the south, and moving into like um, nicer areas and just trying to do better for themselves. So the girl who lived next door to me was from New York. The girl from the, across the street was from Boston and Philly, and we had all of them around there. Here I am from Colorado. It's just not as exciting to say you're from Colorado as to say you're from Philadelphia. So there was this one girl, her name was Desiree, and I thought that she was so cool. 
when we were in the fifth grade, she had like the desire to be a choreographer. And that's not normal. Like fifth graders don't really desire to be choreographers, but that's not a common thing. And so she started a little dance team in her community, and I was in her community, so I was on the dance team. And I just thought I couldn't dance, and I just thought she was the best person in the world because she could dance, and she was from somewhere else, and she wanted to be a choreographer. And so um, in our neighborhood, I don't know if you guys' neighborhoods did this, but in our neighborhood, we would have um, like competitions between our side of the neighborhood and other sides of the neighborhood. And sometimes we have like dance-offs between the sides of the neighborhood. Oh yes, like definitely 90s movie style. You know, so we'd have dance-offs between the different communities. Sometimes we have kickball versus the different communities and people who come from other streets. And it was just excellent. So there was one time when Desiree and I were standing and we felt like they would be coming from the other side to challenge us today, but we weren't sure, and nobody has a cell phone, and I couldn't leave the cul-de-sac, so I'm just waiting for them to come down. And she was nice to me, so she was waiting in the cul-de-sac with me. So we see them at the top of the street, she had this big hill that I lived on, big hill all the way down to the cul-de-sac. And she lived at the top of the street, I mean, we're standing at the top of the street, and we see the people coming from the top of the street. Now we have friends who are in our dance crew, that are over there, so they might be coming from the top of the street. And we also have enemies who are not from there that could also be coming from. So we don't know who's coming from the top of the street. I realized that this story might become anticlimactic, and I apologize for that. <laughs> but just, just prepare for that now. Um, and so we're standing there, and Dad's like, I can't see them. And I'm like, they're right there. What do you mean? They're coming down the street. She's like, oh, hold on, let me put my glasses on. And so she, she takes her hand, she does like this. <laughs> and I was like, you okay? And she was like, this is how I put my glasses on. Like when I can't see, I just pull my, uh, pull my eyes back like this. And then I can see better. And I was like, does that work? And she was like, try it out. And I tried it. And I, I realized now I needed glasses also. And I tried it and I was like, oh, I can see them too. This is great. This is my friend. So they came down. It didn't turn out to be a dance crew challenge. It was our friends and it was great. But from then on, I was like, if I ever forget my glasses, let me put them back on because y'all are blurry. <laughs> um, if I ever forget my glasses, I have this glasses trick. So I was doing it in the house one day. I was like, I'm gonna put my glasses on. I'm like, are you a big kid? And I was like, yeah, I just, I'm just putting my glasses on. And she made an eye appointment for me that day. <laughs> because she was like, that's not acceptable. So uh, that's my one story. Second story. Um, which is a little bit more intense. I, I think I have some executive functioning difficulties. Other people will have a name for this, but I haven't gone to talk to somebody about the name for this, so I won't claim to have the name for this. But I have some executive functioning difficulties. It's hard for me to stay focused. It's hard for me to be organized. It's hard for me to be on time. Being charismatic, I got that in the bag. Being ready, not so much. And so this has always been a struggle for me and in school, I, I really value like achievement and doing well. And so I had to figure out a way to like get over my lack of motivation, my difficulties with executive functioning. And that is when I discovered the power of anxiety. Anybody else familiar with how powerful anxiety can be? It has just the right amount of fear to make you be able to do stuff that you didn't want to do. I want to sit on the couch and watch this TV show, but the fear of getting in trouble and failing this grade is going to get me to get up and do something about it. And oh my goodness, I figured out in high school that I could use anxiety as a motivator to help me overcome stuff. 
Well, it works for a little while because you will achieve and you'll overcome stuff, and then people will say, oh, you're good at this. We should give you more things. So they give you more things, and the result of that is if you guessed it, you'd be right, it's more anxiety. So we have more anxiety, more responsibility, and people say you do great, so they give you more things, and you get more anxiety, and that becomes this pattern. So now, as an adult, I'm in this place in my life where I have lots of things in my hands, and I come home to my husband and I say, husband, I'm more anxious than I've ever been in my whole life, and I don't know what's wrong with me. And he was like, you want some tea? Like we have messed it up this whole time. 
I want to make sure I'm doing what I'm doing. So as I was reading through this, you see the leader's responses are so intense. And I'm going to get to the slide in a minute. The leader's responses to what the people are doing they're very harsh and intense responses. At one point, Ezra's crying. He's pulling his hair out. Nehemiah's like, I'm not going to pull my hair out. I'm pulling your hair out. So he pulls other people's hair out. You know, we're kicking people's wives out. Like, it is the most intense response to anything. And it is because of this intensity of the fear that they don't want to mess it up. There is this massive overcompensation. So I want to look at some of the main events of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, so we can kind of talk through some of those. So Zerubbabel builds the temple, right? Zerubbabel. Also, um, please forgive me if I spell my last name wrong. <laughs> All right. Um, Zerubbabel builds the temple. This is good in the sense that it's good for the people to collectively worship together. Nothing wrong with that. God has still mandated sacrifices. Nothing wrong with that. So at at um, on a theoretical level, this was good. I think he desired to do what the Lord really wanted. Like, I think Zerubbabel's heart was good and valuable. Here, um, Ezra separates men from their foreign wives. So Ezra, um, this is when the leaders recognized that the exiles had taken all these foreign wives, and he decreed that you should separate from your foreign wives in the scriptures. And so some men leave their wives, some men don't. But Ezra's heart here was consecration. His heart was that the people would be consecrated to the Lord. And this was the only way that he could think of to do that. And all the elders around him were like, that's a great idea, Ezra. And he was like, all right, that's what we're doing. Nehemiah built a wall around Jerusalem. This was great. This is an attempt to consecrate Jerusalem, which is beautiful because God has often called Jerusalem like this city on a hill and other people will look to you. So I can understand Nehemiah's heart to consecrate Jerusalem to the Lord. And he builds this wall in order to do that. And even at the end, when he encourages the people to come to repentance and revival, he's trying to start by teaching them the law and keeping the festivals, that's also good. It's good to cultivate repentance. It's good for them to desire to be revived, to desire to be closer to the Lord. All this stuff, in theory, is super good, right? But the sad thing is how it turns out often. If you go to the next slide, I'll about that. So Zerubbabel builds the temple, but the presence of God doesn't descend in the temple. And the people are weeping. Good in theory, but in practice, you miss the Lord. Ezra separates the men from the foreign, their foreign wives, and Nehemiah builds the wall. That, both of those feel connected to me as an attempt to consecrate the people, both in their hearts and their actions, and from the other people that feel connected to me. In doing that, vulnerable people are excluded and mistreated. And God, all throughout the Old Testament, is clear about how you should be treating foreigners. You should be considerate. You should be kind to them. You should, if they want to know your God, you should invite them to know your God. You shouldn't exclude them. And you cut off the community. Um, I didn't get to preach this down here, but when I was studying the first half of Ezra, I discovered at the beginning of Ezra when it says the enemies of, um, of Jerusalem opposed Ezra's or Zerubbabel's building. It was actually the Samaritans, who were also Jewish people who just disagreed about where we should worship. So they had just as much right to worship the Lord as the Israelites did, but the Israelites cut them off from being able to worship in the temple. So in trying to consecrate the people, they lose the very community that they're trying to, to save. 
And then in Nehemiah trying to encourage the people into revival, into repentance, the people, Bree did such a good job of preaching. She said, she shared that um, the people say at the end, yes, God, everything that you've decreed, we will do. And then immediately, do <laughs> And that is super sad, but they evidence the thing that we've always known that's been true about humans is that we can do it. We can't. We, we really want to do what the Lord wants. And we recognize that there's a problem with us, just as they recognize there's a problem with us, but we can't fix the problem. And so um, in the midst of all this sadness, it doesn't seem sad, but when you look at it from a thousand feet, it feels kind of sad. The prophets are still prophesying, thus says the Lord in this. And that's the piece that I've been tasked to share with you guys. Not the story of Ezra and Nehemiah per se, but the prophecy that came from the prophets during this time. Okay? So let's read together some. Keep going, Luke. So um, there are too many prophecies that I want to read with you today. Jeremiah 31 is the first one, and Ezekiel 36 is the second one. I didn't know this about prophetic books before now. Uh, but the prophets were really long-winded. They had a lot to say, and it's like 50 verses. So uh, in an effort to not lose you completely, I will not make you read all the verses in all of these. But it's so good. If you want to go back and read it on your own time when you have like control of your own attention span, you should do that. Okay? <laughs> all right, let's start. But I, we're going to read some of this together. So let's start um, in Jeremiah 31. Verses 1 through 8. Nope, that's 9. Keep going. Cool, you're doing great. All right. It says, uh, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appealed, appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. And there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the country, in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise and let us go up to Zion to be up to the Lord our God. Don't be the Lord our God. Just go to him. <laughs> Thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and rise shouts for the chiefs of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O oh Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them forth from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the lame and the blind, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. Is that the last one? I think so. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so this first section... I feel like God was so kind to them. This feels like empathy. That's what I'm thinking of when I read this. It feels like he is wooing them. Can you go back? Yes. So first of all, he starts um, by acknowledging that he put them in the wilderness. And I, 
appreciate that. Um, I just discovered that uh, there's this guy, he does, have you ever heard of the five love languages? There's one he does, the guy who made that, called the five apology languages. And it, it's so good, you can take the quiz online, you should. And um, it's like how people apologize. And I took the quiz and I found out, for me, when you apologize to me, I need you to acknowledge what you did wrong and take full responsibility for it. Otherwise, the apology doesn't count for me. Other people, I want you to fix it. Don't say anything to me, I want you to go fix the thing. You know, there are different ways that people apologize. I feel like God covered everything here because he starts by acknowledging that they are in a low place and that he, he sent them to the wilderness. And that there was a sword there, that this was not a great time for you. I acknowledge that in exile, this was hard for you. But those of you who made, that, who made it through that, I'm gonna give you rest. Those of you who sought rest, I'm gonna give it to you because I still love you, because I'm still faithful to you. Keep going, go back. Oh, virgin Israel, that's such an interesting term because he consistently accuses them of being with other gods. So why is he saying, oh, virgin Israel? This is his, his thoughts of them in restoration. I'm not seeing you like this anymore. I'm fully restoring you. You are a virgin again, Israel, even though you've been unfaithful in the past. I'm faithful to you. I feel like God, and you shall dance with tambourines and adorn yourself, make yourself cute. I feel like he is fully wooing them right here because he knows the pain that they've been through. So first, he prophesies this empathy with their situation and this wooingness that he loves them. He's going to remain faithful to them. And that's great. It's great that he wants to like woo us and woo them. I think that's beautiful. And, you know, we were talking about the apology languages a moment ago. It's good for me if you apologize and you own it. Not saying that God needs to apologize, but you understand what I'm saying. It's good for me if you apologize and you own what you did. But if you still do the same thing you did last time, is this really an apology? I, I don't know. It doesn't really matter to me. So God isn't an apologizing here, but he does acknowledge the ways that their hearts have been hurt. But they still have no ability to do anything different. Like, you're calling me a virgin again. But I'm still the same kind of person who might go out and find another God. So I, is, is your restoration really going to do anything for me? So then he continues. Um, and the hope that he gives them in this next section of Jeremiah 31, um, the, the second half of this, starts to, we start to hear a shift in this. Because God recognized, he's always known, he recognizes that you guys have no ability to do this. You have tried every method. I feel like Ezra and Nehemiah represent all the best of our human efforts. As a leader, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel did everything you could possibly do to motivate a people. He, Nehemiah aggressed them into you know, restoration. Ezra tried to aggress himself into them, honoring the Lord. Um, there's guilt in them. There's shame in them. There's crying out. There's charismatic. There's festivals. Everything you possibly do as a human to get a people to do what you want, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel have done that in this book, and they have still been unable to accomplish what they hoped to accomplish. And the Lord is aware of that, so he speaks to them a different thing that he's going to do, and he says that here that he's going to do a new thing with them. And this is the new thing that he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one say, teach his neighbor, and each his brother say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What a, I don't know, statement of hope. I had the law spoken to you. I had it written on tablets. I had it written on scrolls. I had it taught through um, oracle means or oratory, oratory means for a long time, and it never worked, but don't worry about it. I'm going to come and make a brand new covenant with you, and I'm going to write my law on your heart. And that, that's, that's the stuff that makes this worth it. And then Jeremiah is prophesying to one half of the exiles at the same time, around the same time that Ezekiel is prophesying to some of the exiles. And Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel 36. Same kind of concept. Two different people, two different prophets in two different areas saying the same thing. Ezekiel says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God God is declaring this through two different prophets at the same time. I'll come back to that. Two different prophets at the same time that he's going to be their God and they're going to be his people. And he's going to write this very law that they've been able, unable to keep on their hearts. Which feels so valuable to me that he's going to do that for them. So the people are receiving this prophecy and they're hearing it. And it's beautiful. And when I was reading this, um, there were some things I wanted to draw your attention to that were super... Uh, just exciting for me. And I don't really know what to fully do with them. I'm still learning a lot about the Bible. Could you believe that? And um, I don't know what to fully do with these things that I've noticed. But as I was reading through Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, I recognized that God talked about every possible member of the family as he was saying all of this. So he starts by saying, you, O Israel, I will bring you back. Israel was a person. And it's interesting, he's talking to an entire nation of people, but he mentions Israel as if he's one single person. I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting, God. Like, you know you're talking like 30,000 million people. But he's remembering Israel, the person, Jacob, the person that he made a covenant with back in the day. Saying when he acknowledges Rachel. Uh, we're coming up soon, you can keep going. He's going to acknowledge, keep going, keep going more. Okay, I didn't put it up here, but I'm going to tell you what he says to Rachel. He says, Rachel, stop your weeping. I heard you weeping because your children were scattered. But stop weeping because I'm going to bring them back and I'm going to be faithful to you like I was faithful to them. So he acknowledges Rachel's pain. He acknowledges Israel's pain. Then he talks about Ephraim. Does anybody know who Ephraim is? 
Right, me neither. I was like, who is Ephraim? Why are you highlighting him? You should be highlighting somebody that we know. Ephraim was Joseph's second son. And the Lord says, Ephraim, my firstborn, I have heard you cry out. I've heard you say I'm unclean and I need rest and I will respond to you. The Lord calls Ephraim his firstborn, even though Ephraim is Joseph's second son. What does that mean? I think it's a picture of Jesus, who is the second Adam, and, and him restoring him to all this firstborn rights. So as I was reading this, I just saw this family language. You got the, the father, you got the mother, and you got the kids all in there. I'm like, God, why are, you, why are you saying this? And it just feels like it's a picture of him doing a full restorative work, restoring all the family elements that have been lost in this. Restoring and being attentive to the heart of the mother, the heart of the father, the heart of the children, that no piece of this will be left as I make this new covenant with you. And I thought that was beautiful. So then there comes the, the question of how. How do we receive this glorious covenant that you've been talking about? What do we need to do? Because so far, all we can do is overcompensate. Do you want me to, I don't know, build another thing? Do you want me to start a new ministry? Like, what do you want me to do to receive it? And verse 9, it's right in the middle of this, but I think it captures what you should do. Um, it says, with weeping, it's Jeremiah 31 and 9. It says, with weeping, they shall come. With pleas of mercy, I will lead them back. That was it. It, it wasn't anything more special than that. It was just to come. And not only to come um, quickly or none of that stuff. It's, it was to come low. It was to come in this place of what I have to offer you right now is weeping. Because I don't have anything else. I'm in a super low place. I recognize that by my best efforts, I cannot do what I desire to do. And I'm just going to bring you that. And that spoke to me, and I, it feels like it speaks to us where we are because we don't have a lot to give the Lord, especially now with all the things we've experienced as a body, all the things we've experienced personally. I think this lowness is all I have to offer you. And it's perfect because Jesus said, that's exactly how I'm going to bring you back. Lowness is what you have. That is the requirement. So great, you made it in. Come on and receive from me. I thought that was wonderful that the Lord made the requirements so low because that is something that we have. We have any ability it's, um, to not do it so well. So thank God that he was like, actually, that's the requirement. So you did a great job. And so he says all of this stuff to them, that he's going to put his spirit in them and he's going to restore them. He's going to write the law on his heart. And that, that is in Ezekiel 36. And then what evidence does he give him that they're going to do this? Um, if you know what Ezekiel 37 is, Ezekiel 37 is when Ezekiel gets uh, caught up by the Lord to go to the Valley of Dry Bones. And he speaks to the bones and the bones grow skin and they get new hearts and they live all again. So he said, I'm going to do this to you. And the evidence that I'm going to do this for you is resurrection life. Let me show you. I'm going to raise up all these bones from the dead. Now, as I'm sure you're, you're getting ahead of me, which I love, Jesus did the same exact thing. He came and he said, I'm going to do this thing for you. I'm going to give you a new covenant. I'm going to put a new heart in you. What's going to be the evidence of that? Resurrection life. I'm going to die and then I'm going to raise up from the grave. And I'm not going to only raise up myself, but I'm going to raise up everybody around you. And 500 people saw their loved ones walking free that day. My God. 
What, man, what a thing to use to seal this covenant. He could have sealed it just with blood. He could have sealed it with his word because his word spoke and made everything. But no, he said, I'm going to seal it with resurrection life. Not just for me, but for you as well. So Jesus comes, and when he dies, the veil tears from top to bottom, which restores that peace of building that wall that separated everybody. He was like, I built the first wall, and I'm tearing it down first. I'm breaking this veil first. The thing that separated you from me, I'm tearing it down. So now everything that separates you from me and you from your neighbor, you need to tear it down. And I'll tear it down with you by, your, by my spirit. He starts with that. Then after that, he says, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. I'm going to write these laws in you. And he does that in John 14 and 26. Let me go there for a moment. All right, in John 14, all my pages are sticking together. Come on, Bible. You shouldn't eat sticky things and read your Bible. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> but I'm not going to do it if I don't have a snack. So, all right, John 14 and 26 says, You have heard me say, oh, that's 28. Oh, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring, you, um, bring to your remembrance all that I've said. This is Jesus speaking. After he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, then he continues to speak. It's in red that I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to teach you. He said, I'm going to put a spirit in you. He sends the spirit to teach you all things, to bring all things to your remembrance. If you say, I learned that from the Lord, but I forgot, he says, I will help you remember it. Don't even worry about it. That's good news for me and my executive functioning. I need you to remind me of what I don't know. And thank God that the Holy Spirit comes to do that. He, he restores all that stuff. So all the things that the, the leaders were trying to do in consecrating the people and separating them from um, foreign wives, the goal there actually was to separate them from foreign gods because the foreign women came with their foreign gods, and that was the intention. But it was a problem of the heart. He said, but don't worry about it. Jesus fixed it here in John. He says, I'm going to put my spirit in you, and my spirit will convict you of righteousness, of, of sin, of, there's one more, of judgment, of judgment. My spirit's going to do that. So you don't have to make big drastic decisions about who you're cutting off from your life. I'm going to do that for you. And the last one that he restores is pure worship. Zerubbabel building the temple, I think it was a beautiful attempt to create pure worship again, but it exiled the Samaritans and the Holy Spirit didn't come. The Lord didn't descend on that. And that's a problem. But in John 4, when he's talking to the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, he says, what does he say to her? Oh, there's a time coming. And indeed, see how Holy Spirit brought to my remembrance? Oh, I thank you. <laughs> there was a time coming and indeed is here now when true worshipers will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Right there, he fixes that thing that was broken. Jesus comes as the answer and the full restoration of everything that Ezra and Nehemiah were unable to do in their best efforts. And that's so good for us because we receive the spirit and we are all leaders. I feel like I'm talking to a room of all the missionary and ministry leaders. All of you guys are ministry leaders and we have efforts that we could do to make stuff happen. But in our, all of our best efforts, we're no better than Ezra and Nehemiah. 
But thank God that he gave us this new covenant because we don't have to be any better than them. As a fact, we join ourselves with them because their lowness and our lowness is equal. And he lifts it all up. He does this work in us. And so we can be assured in the work that he's doing. So that was pretty much the whole thing I wanted to tell you. I don't really have a lot more to say. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. Thank you, Jeff. Does that count? Does that count? Okay, let me tell you some um, just like prophetic things I think might be happening. Steve is preaching. Steve's probably going to tell you way more prophetic things because that is his function in the body. And I feel so grateful that the man functions in his function. So go listen to his sermon because you're going to hear all the prophetic things. But when I was leaving that upper room, the first one I was never anxious at, there was this cry coming from us about being in this wilderness place. There was a cry about the experience of some of our single moms in our body. And there was this cry of like the desire for inner healing, for water in this deserty place. And it's interesting, I feel like our body's been led to a wilderness place, but it's not like when Moses was led to the, no, it's not like when uh, Egypt, when they left Egypt, when the Israelites left Egypt and they ended up in the wilderness. It's not like that. It feels more like when Jesus was led to the wilderness. It feels like we were following the Lord into this place. We didn't end up in a wilderness because of our sin or because of something else. It feels like we followed the Lord and this is where we are right now. And it's like, oh man, you sure this is where you want to bring us? It's, it's really dry here, God. <laughs> Get some rain or something. It's intense. And there's some difficulty here, but I feel like this promise in this scripture is for us. I think when he's talking to Rachel and he's saying, stop weeping, because I've heard the cries of you and your children, and I will restore them, and I will make a covenant with them. I feel like that's a promise for us right now that came up in upper room prayer. And these places where you feel like there's dry bones, I feel like the Lord is speaking restoration to that. So those are the prophetic things. I had an opportunity to pray for a lady today. No, not today. This week um, to do inner healing prayer, and I've never done that before. And I told her that. She came to me, and I was like, ma'am, I've never done this, and I don't know how to do it. But if you are interested, can I, you can come play if you want to. Can we just work this out together with Jesus? I'm going to ask him to come and see what happens. She was like, that's fine. And so I prayed for her that the Lord would heal some of her memories that she's had for a long time that she hasn't been able to get over. And I'm like, close my eyes, but peeping at her to see if something's happening. I don't know. And then at the end, I ask her, like, how do you feel? What do you feel like is happening? She says, something shifted in me. I can feel it. I said, Jesus! I, I, I celebrated in that room because, man, I don't know how to do this. I don't have any power to do this. And it, it was so good because it's like, you don't have to. If you ask me, I want to do this. And that, that is part of this scripture, too. There's a moment in uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel where the Lord says, tell them to ask me to do this for them because I want to do this for them. And that's that. And that's what he's saying. And that's what he's saying to us. I want to do this with you. Ask me to do it because I want to do it. Just, I dare you, just ask me, you know. I feel like that's how his heart is. Like, I got you. And, and that's it. And we will be asking because we need water and we need him. Amen.